Okay. Can I be honest here? Yes. I used to rely on alcohol for a lot of things, including managing my PMS symptoms like anxiety, irritability, feeling blue, ugh, huge mistake. However, as a sober girl today, that is obviously not an option, but have no fear. Ladies, we found a solution to our PMS woes, alcohol so not needed. Enter Jubilance, your daily support and new BFF when it comes to true and effective PMS relief. It's so simple. Just take one capsule a day and keep your symptoms at bay. If you're interested in trying it, you can use the code SOBERGIRLS for $10 off your first order. I've noticed I have more energy, focus, less cravings, and my mood feels so much more balanced. Jubilance is a non-hormonal available over-the-counter and powered by two-ingredient formula used by thousands of women worldwide to live PMS mood symptom-free. Think less anxiety, less irritability, more peace, power, and dare I say, fun all month long. Try Jubilance for $10 off by visiting jubilance.com forward slash sobergirls or Use the promo code SOBERGIRLS at checkout. That's J-U-B-I-L-A-N-C-E dot com slash SOBERGIRLS for $10 off. Now we know that finding the perfect non-alcoholic drink and symptoms feel like a major challenge, but we've discovered something that's about to knock your socks off and your taste buds too. Go Brewing. Did you know Go Brewing was rated number one, number one, Michaela, for non-alcoholic beer in the country, and rightly so. Fun fact, all of their beers fall under the gluten-free guidelines, so you won't get that gross bloated feel that you sometimes can get when you're drinking, let's be honest. Plus, all their brews without fruit have less than one gram of sugar. Because we want to feel sexy and sober and have fun, Go Brew is the perfect choice for us. And who says beer isn't sophisticated when you could just put it in a champagne glass like I do? My favorite at the moment is the Sunshine State Tropical IPA from Go Brewing. It's the mango and peach flavor. As a listener, you can save 15% by going to brewing.com slash sobergirls or by using the code sobergirls. Plus, get a free two-day shipping on orders of $40 or more. Again, go to brewing.com slash SoberGirls or use our code SoberGirls for 15% off. Hey guys, welcome to Two Sober Girls Podcast. I am your host, Michaela. I'm here with my co-host, Erin, and we have a special guest today. We have Dr. Erin, our in-house specialist. She is... She works at Mount Sinai in New York City, and she's worked as a doctor, as an internist for 25 years, and she treats several alcoholics every day. She's a mom of twin boys, 13 years old, amazing, and she's married and lives in Colts Neck, New Jersey, and I wanted to introduce you to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Aaron. How are you today? Well, thank you, ladies, for having me. I'm quite honored to be on your podcast, and I do want to address a very important topic today, which is alcohol dependence. We can touch on some drug addiction, but this is really alcohol-based, and that will be my primary focus today. We are head out weight. So can you backtrack and tell us a little bit how you got into this specific field and your experience with it and what you've seen and learned over the years? Sure. Um, My healthcare career started as a registered nurse. I worked at Mount Sinai, interestingly, and then um, 
I decided I wanted to go to medical school. After medical school, I spent the large part of my career in Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. Um, as a mom of twins, I had to take a year off during COVID and came back and now work at Mount Sinai. At both Lenox Hill at Mount Sinai, um, there's no question that alcohol is very pervasive, very addictive in our society. Uh, they say from Park Avenue to your park bench. I have seen it in every socioeconomic strata, youth, older. Um, a lot of people overlook people that are in their 90s that may be alcohol dependent just from loneliness and different issues that surround them. We certainly saw a spike with COVID. Uh, it's pervasive. It's evident. I see it every day in the hospital. Because I am a hospitalist, a hospitalist is an internist that primarily works in the hospital. I do not work in primary care, though I am trained in that. Um, I do see people in an acute setting in alcohol withdrawal, or you sort of glean it out of them while they're there. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, and what is driving that, which commonly is alcohol. Mm. Fascinating. So can you talk a little bit about the medical side of what alcohol does to the body? And is there a difference with age? So if you like start young, if you're in your twenties, like, is there a different process that, that your body digests it or, or takes it? Well, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, we live in a society that um, promotes alcohol. Alcohol is everywhere. There's Booze Day Tuesday, you know, uh, Wacky Wednesday, Sunday brunch, where people drink huge amounts of alcohol. And certainly, you know, there's an impulsivity to it, which can drive alcohol early on, binge drinking, mm -hmm. just a, a state of euphoria that it does give you. It's sort of a magic toxin. Uh, the younger you drink, the more risky behavior you have. That is well documented. Um, the older you are, certainly the way we metabolize it can affect you. Um, there's an entire psychology devoted just to people that drink alone versus people who drink in large social settings. There's at-risk behavior. But in the end, really, anyone who drinks is at risk to become an alcoholic. And many are alcoholics and don't realize it. Wow. With so I agree. I think, oh, you know, I, what is... Is there a number, I know for women and men, it's different, but is there a number that like per week that would consider you an alcoholic per drinks? Well, doctors as a whole, especially those, I'm not an addiction specialist, but I do spend a lot of time in addiction. Um, we don't like these numbers because mm -hmm. people say, well, one drink for a woman, two drinks for a man a day. But really any alcohol, again, it's a toxin you're ingesting into your body. That's considered safe drinking. But new studies are coming out showing that any amount of alcohol, and I'll get into that in a little bit, um, but it does shrink your brain overall, which is sad. Because when we look for, let's say you didn't drink, but you come to me and I'm an internist. And I do see this a lot um, in the city and really probably everywhere. Someone will drop off their mother or father and say to us, oh, they became demented overnight. So that doesn't happen. 
It's a, it's a process, just like alcoholism is. So what we do often is we'll scan the brain. And what we see in the brain is that the ventricles, which drain your cerebrospinal fluid, which is like a holding cell in the, in the brain, they may become enlarged. But what we will see on the scan is that the brain shrinks. And when we see that without a stroke or anything in that setting, we certainly know this is even without alcohol, that there is some component of memory loss. It did not happen overnight. That is clearly seen with alcohol. The brain shrinks over time, and there are multiple studies showing that in the current literature. Fascinating. And, you know, this is making me, you know, think back to my own journey with alcohol. I didn't become an alcoholic overnight. It is a slow, progressive disease, just like what you're seeing Aaron, Dr. Aaron, when your patients come in ER, this is a little drip by drip by drip deterioration of the body. For me, it was slowly but progressively becoming one to two glasses to I can't go without one or two bottles. And you know, this, and it's incredible, even if it's one glass, and I think it's so important to say this, there's damage being done to your entire body, to your brain, one, you know, one drink. It's a, I love what you said, Erin, it's called a magic toxin. You're right. Like somehow we're just like, you know, turning a blind eye to say, oh yeah, we're ingesting toxins, but it's okay because everyone's celebrating or it's, it's culturally acceptable, but I'm hoping that we get to shift this a little bit. This is so much of why we're here, but that was like just fascinating to listen to you explain all of that. The tricky thing about alcohol, um, it's a elusive elixir because when you take it, even in a sip, as you'll see with a child that might take a sip of alcohol, it releases a sense of euphoria, something you really cannot attain with normal physiology. So while a toxin, it gives you a sudden euphoria and everybody wants to chase that effect. The problem is then it becomes an impulsive notion to want to take it in a social setting oh, I'm shy, let me drink alcohol. It will take away this feeling. And it certainly does because we're gonna talk about parts of the brain that it affects. And um, it certainly affects your personality and your impulse in your impulse control, your behavior. Someone who is a relatively passive person can become totally psychotic if they drink enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is a com- compulsivity to it where there's a compulsion to drink. There's psychology along with physiology to support that. I am more here today to talk about the physiology, but we will get into it and talk about the very exciting entity of neurotransmitters. Love it. I teach interns and residents and medical students and pharmacy students and nursing students, and it can be taught. And I think when you know what's happening, there's power in that. That's it. Amen. That's, that's it. And I think we have to get curious and learn about our own bodies and our own brains and how it works and what happens. And it doesn't have to be so in depth, like learning to be a doctor, but just like the basics, I think people truly have no idea. And like Aaron said, they turn a blind eye to what's actually happening. So I think it was uh, Miley Cyrus has struggled with addiction, but something she's repeatedly said when she breaks from sobriety is I don't get furious. I get curious. Why did I do it? What, what caused it to happen? Why, when I took it, was I drinking back to like I was or drugging mm. like I within no time? And, and there is a physiologic reason for that. You know, when it's crazy, we are human beings and human beings, the body is very good. The body wants to regulate and normalize. And we 
people are doing something to it that is causing it to go off kilter. It's sort of a seesaw and it just wants balance. So we'll talk about. Yeah, so where I'm even wondering, like, where should we even dive in? I mean, now that's making me think of what you're speaking of, Dr. Aaron, is the phenomenon of craving and why people relapse. Why with the best intentions, with all the information. And these are people, and this is, again, it's so important to say, it is Park Avenue to a park bench. It, it does not matter. But you can have, be the most educated, sophisticated, you know, self-controlled in every other aspect. Why can why is it so hard for people to stop? And why is it so common for the relapse? Like what is happening in our brains making it quite, I'm not gonna say impossible, but quite difficult. Okay, so let's start with just sipping alcohol. We'll just go logically. So alcohol is a depressant, no question. It's a depressant. I know it gets people excited when they first drink it, but it to the body is a depressant. And we're going to explain why. Um, alcohol is derived from a chemical co compound called ethanol. That mm -hmm. is a toxin when taken in larger quantities. So you sip alcohol, it goes into your mouth. Alcoholics or people that are you know, may not want to identify maybe alcohol dependent, binge drinkers, whatever you want to call it, daily drinkers, social drinkers. Yeah. Anybody, yeah. All, all, all people that ingest alcohol, you're exposing your mouth to a toxin. You, you immediately, when you swallow, it goes into your food pipe, your esophagus, and then into your stomach. So you people you will often hear late in life have oral cancers, esophageal cancers related to alcoholism. That's just from the direct effect of the toxin. And anyone who drinks a beer and switches over to whiskey or to a sharper drink, uh, they're all not good. But um, that's you can feel the effect in your mouth or your throat when you drink. Yeah. So that just is. Now, you have not absorbed alcohol yet while it goes down your food pipe and into your stomach. Women tend to be affected more than men because we lack an enzyme. We have an enzyme that men have, alcohol dehydrogenase. That's an enzyme that breaks down alcohol, but we have less of it. So we do not uh, break down alcohol as well as men. That doesn't mean that men do not become alcoholics. Obviously they do, mm -hmm. but it has more of an effect on us because right away we are down. Part we have the enzyme, but there's less of it. So we have more alcohol already. Now it's leaving our stomach, going into our small intestine. And that is where alcohol is absorbed. So when alcohol goes into your small intestine, um, that is where you absorb it. And the moment it hits there, it's like if you're driving on a road and then it splits five ways, it suddenly goes all over your body. So it's being transported to your brain, to your bone marrow, to everything. Um, we, you know, your liver is uh, sort of the filter of your body. And the liver is a wonderful, wonderful organ. It breaks down all kinds of things, but mainly it breaks down alcohol. And this can increase in formation of lipids. And that's why people, when they were well on their way and alcohol dependent, can develop something called fatty liver. And fatty liver is a precursor to cirrhosis. It's thought that in the literature, if you drink for 10 years regularly, you will develop cirrhosis. That is a loose rule, 
that is some people it's less, some people it's more, it's like fetal alcohol syndrome. They don't know if it's a sip. They don't know if it's a glass a day. They don't know if it's drinking every day. They don't know. You just should not expose the baby and never drink when you're pregnant because they're not really sure of quantity. Everybody's different. Our genetics are different. Our body composition is different. So this is something important to remember, but the loose rule is about 10 years of steady drinking. And that just for your listeners, that doesn't mean on and off. That doesn't mean straight through. If you're drinking that much, you, you are likely alcohol dependent, but that can lead to cirrhosis. The wonderful thing about the body, there's so many wonderful things to talk about today, but very few of our organs in our system are end organs, meaning if we damage them, they cannot regenerate. One of them is the brain. It's not coming back once it's gone. The other is the eye. Uh, it's an end, end organ in that if you get an embolism or something in your eye and have blindness, it's, it's very difficult to... Um, undo that. However, the liver does regenerate. It's a very powerful organ and very forgiving. Whether we eat too much, whether we don't exercise, whatever damage we're doing to it, um, it tries to fix itself. And that's why when people see people that uh, donate livers, they're able to give part of their liver because part of it will regenerate. So some people give a, a portion to a sibling or, or you know, somebody that may need it and it will regenerate itself and it will work in the other person because it's a regenerative organ. So as much as people may drink, the liver is really working hard to help you maintain homeostasis, which is what the body's amazing. Ultimately, it just wants to normalize itself. We're going to how alcohol affects that and trying to maintain homeostasis when we're constantly poisoning it with alcohol and drugs. Also then, of course, after we've ingested it, it's gone through the small intestine, it's filtered through the liver. It also has to be pooed out and peed out in our intestines and our kidneys. And we certainly know that it makes us prone to cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, all kinds of cancer, but it also goes through your kidneys and kidneys, while they make urine, they also regulate acidity. It causes a permanent inflammatory effect there. You will start to spill protein into your urine. When I introduce patients, I always ask them, when you urinate, do you notice foam in your urine, almost like a root beer or a beer? If you see bubbles like that, that is you are spilling protein. Diabetics are very aware of this. People with lupus are aware of this. But alcoholics, this could be happening and likely are causing kidney damage also. Whoa. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just. So it's a I, lot of things. It's yeah. a lot. And this happens every time that you drink. Time you drink alcohol and it hits your small intestine, you've absorbed it. So for instance, um, let's take a different organ you may not even think of. When you ingest alcohol, like we said, it goes down to all those different organs and it makes its way into the small intestine. And like we talked about the different roads it takes. One road it also heads to that we see a lot of as a hospitalist is your bone marrow. So that's one people don't even think of. Your bone marrow is all over your body. Um, people may be aware of it because of diseases like leukemia that directly affect the bone marrow. You can pick up a virus that can affect your bone marrow. But for instance, you drink every day. Uh, you're young. You may not think you're an alcoholic. Well, all of a sudden, they'll check your blood levels, just something called a complete blood count. And in that, you make three. There's lots of things you make in your bone marrow, but three major ones are white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. White blood cells fight infection. Alcohol is a direct suppressant to the bone marrow. So all of a sudden you're not making as many white cells and what is that? They fight infection. So what happens? You're getting sick all the time. You're catching colds. You're picking up things that nobody else around you is picking up. 
your red blood cells, well, they make red blood. And your hemoglobin, when that goes low, you're very tired, short of breath, no energy. Your platelets, they clot blood. So all of a sudden you bang yourself into your desk or you just hit something inadvertently going to the bathroom and you have a huge welt that wouldn't have normally happened. Likely your bone marrow has been depressed. Fortunately, we talked about homeostasis and the amazing body that it is. It will try and regenerate those cells, but it takes three months. So when someone comes to me and they say to me, well, I don't really drink. And I see what we call a pancytopenia, pan meaning all. I see everything's down. Well, of course, we think of malignancy. We don't want to know. But if they're not telling us the truth, we can't help them. We'll do a whole workup trying to figure it out. And there are tells. There's very complicated things I don't want to get into right now. But there's uh, liver enzymes that have a certain ratio. So there's an AST level. And there's a mnemonic in medicine called AST, a scotch and tonic, meaning drinkers tend to have that high. So when we see that, we know it's a tell. We say this person could be an alcoholic. They're not telling us. They have a pancytopenia. The cells, because they're being thrown out of bone marrow too soon, they tend to be a little bigger than the other cells. And these are all tells. So I often wonder when I see patients, I may guess that they're an alcoholic. I might probe a little bit, but if they're not coming forth, listen, for anyone listening, doctors really don't judge. We really don't. We really want to help you. So when we see these things and you tell us, oh, I only have two drinks a day, we can probably tell that you're drinking a lot more than you're saying. We would like to help. But if you're not telling us, that's sort of a covert lie. By not telling, we're not getting the information to really help you. And no one's looking to label you an alcoholic or put it down because I'll tell you in my notes, I say, well, they deny alcohol use, but there's certainly a strong suspicion. Mm, mm. So let's say somebody does tell you they have, you know, three, four drinks per night. What things do you recommend or what things do you talk to them about? Well, then we see really what drive, what is driving that? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I might like to drink a Coca-Cola. That doesn't mean I sit down and drink four. What is it about that? That is likely Mm effect. So is that a psychological and physiology, like your, your body as well, right? Mm-hmm. So especially people that do not use benzodiazepines, which is a class of drugs, including Valium, Ativan, Xanax, amongst others, that um, those have a, an effect, same as alcohol, we're going to talk about it in a moment, but in the body of physiologic response. But psychologically, if people are having a hard time coping, Alcohol being more socially acceptable in that it isn't illegal to drink it, it's readily available. Um, You know, with benzodiazepines, you have to get a prescription or buy it on the street. With cocaine amphetamines, you have to buy it on the street. You're looking for a quick fix, and it's fixing something that is awry in your life. Is it Mm. strength? And is it your marriage? Is it your kids? Something isn't right. And the body wants something to make that feeling go away. And a quick fix would be to take a drink. Right. Right. That makes sense. And how does mixing taking pills with alcohol, how does that great question? You know, how does that, what does that do to the body and the mind? That's lethal. Yeah. Anyone who mixes Xanax or Ativan with alcohol, uh, that is really a, a lethal uh, dosing. Mm-hmm. I am- and it, the, it, 
Stress respiration. Um, I, I know Aaron offline personally, so I will share a story with you of a young man I just had. He's 37. He's six feet three. If you put him in a suit, put him on Wall Street, he's just sort of an Adonis looking man. When he was 17, he drank alcohol and took Xanax. It was a Skittles party where you just take random pills. Apparently, there was a lot of Xanax there. He took it. He wasn't waking up, so his friends went away for the weekend, came back, and he was still asleep. They never called 911 until 48 hours had passed. When they did, he had something called anoxic encephalopathy, where the brain is robbed of oxygen. It's like having a stroke. So he is now paralyzed from the neck down. He lives his life as best he can, but he is wheelchair bound. He, he has a very dependent sort of sad existence. He makes the most of it and good for him. And I, I talked to him about it and he said, I can choose to die or choose to live. This is what happened to me, but this is a fact. Never mix alcohol with any of those drugs. We will talk about how benzodiazepines can be effective when you are going through withdrawal. I'm... I mean, I'm holding back tears and I'm so thankful that you shared that story. Um, and I think it's so important and this is such a big part of why Michaela and I have this podcast because I know so many people that mix. I know so many people that joke about taking Xanax. I, when I was in rehab, I was awoken to this world of benzos that I even, oh, what is this? It's so common and it's so readily available. And we have to know that it is, Benzos, alcohol, it, it, they will kill you. They will. I lost they, my brother to it. I'm sorry. Yeah, 10 years ago. He wasn't mixing it with alcohol, but I mean, I'm sure he drank here and there. It has um, the same effect yeah. about homeostasis. The body will find a way to regulate itself that that is a normal for it. So if you're taking Xanax in regular doses, the body will become dependent mm -hmm. on it and you can't just stop. There are. Now, for anyone on this podcast who is using something like cocaine, certainly seek help. There's lots of help out there for that. But there are just certain drugs where you will go into an active physiologic withdrawal that will kill you. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is one. That's okay. the one I see. Second is um, heroin. Of yeah, course, okay. you have massive withdrawal from that. That can kill you. So you have to be hospitalized. Same with alcohol. You have to be hospitalized. And benzodiazepines. You can have huge withdrawal from that. That will also be lethal. Anyone using those substances should not try and just stop cold turkey. The mm -hmm. withdrawal drugs will kill you. So you need to be check yourself into a hospital, go to an ER. They know exactly what to do. We have parameters. And there are things we look for that you would not know to look for. Something like tongue fasciculations, where your tongue is sort of tremoring in your mouth. You wouldn't even know. Um, it's not just your hands, it's the size of your pupils, things like that. And we know how to medicate you. That's also why, let's say either of you would come to me and I meet you in an emergency room. I immediately tell someone, I'm not judging you. I, it's not important right now. Just tell me what you drank so I have an idea of how to medicate you. Because if you under-report, I'm going to order a low dose of something. Whereas if you tell me the truth, I know exactly what to do with you. But I've seen people die from withdrawal and it's very sad because it can be preventable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Go to a hospital. There's help for you there. You need to be under a doctor's care when you are coming off of any of these substances. And I did see that firsthand too in my rehab where people were, they put down the heroin and it is horrifying. And of course it was medically advised, you know, my rehab was also with doctors, 
Oh my goodness. Thank you for clarifying that. So what happens when the withdrawal happens? So like if somebody is drinking heavily and they want to stop, you do recommend they go to a hospital or to a doctor? Absolutely. Okay. You will not know how to medicate yourself. People, we're, we're going to get into that right now, but um, you will not know how to, usually it's a benzodiazepine when you're withdrawing from alcohol and you will not know how to dose yourself. These drugs are sedatives. You can pass out. You could take too much or too little. You can immediately have a seizure. If you have a seizure, you're not guaranteed to come out of it. You can go into something called status elepticus where you stay in the seizure and that will cause uh, brain damage over time because you have to get oxygen to your brain. Um, there's a loose rule in medicine. You can live three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. So that's a loose rule. But once you don't have oxygen and you're seizing for over three minutes, you are you could die. Preventable. And remember, yeah. we don't judge in hospitals. That's not important for us. We're interested in saving your life. Right. Now, there's that. That's an acute thing. But then there's a outside way, certainly primary care, where we're interested in saving your life and you don't need to go to the hospital, but it is important to be a primary care doctor, certainly have a bond with that person, whether it be immediate or visit two times, but confide in them. It is confidential. Nobody will tell. Mm, and it okay. can be done as an outpatient. So just to go back, so ethanol, um, it depresses brain function and it acts as an anesthetic. That's what it does. And it affects all areas of the brain, including the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is, I'm not going to use a lot of big words. Um, I'll try to, just as if I were talking to one of my patients, but it processes information. So this is an area of the brain where we're going to get into like parts of the brain and how it's affected. But that that's important because you're not comprehending anything when you are drinking alcohol. That's why it's such an issue right now on college campuses with consent and sex, because people don't know what they're doing because they are unable to process information that is given to them. That's a, another podcast. Mm. Um, but the difference between an alcohol addict and an alcohol non-addict goes beyond how much you drink and the intensity of the alcohol consumed. It goes beyond whether it's beer or whiskey, Cosmo, whatever it is you drink. But long-term alcohol abuse can cause physiologic changes in the brain that cause you to become tolerant and physically dependent on this substance. That's why you go into withdrawal. Whoever is going into withdrawal, and it could be something slight, um, such as uh, a little more depressed today, I am a little more anxious today versus full-blown delirium tremens, which can carry a very high mortality if you are not treated for it. So I know I've been in, in different areas of the world. I was in Costa Rica once and someone was physically shaking in front of me and they don't have the medical care there we have here. But we encourage that person to drink because we said, if you don't take something, you're going to go into full, you're going to die right now. But yeah. until, they, again, it's an anesthetic to get them to a hospital and then do it under a stable procedure. But you do change your brain chemistry. This is what's important. So in order to maintain the compulsion, that need for alcohol, your brain chemistry, remember the smart, the body is smart. It will change its normal to what's being done to it. It's not used of having ethanol in its body every day, alcohol. So it itself will reconfigure itself to maintain homeostasis, to maintain a balance. So women are certainly more, more susceptible to alcohol um, and uncontrolled consumption. 
uh, for psychological and physiologic reasons. But when with alcohol addiction, it affects people basically by a positive reinforcement and a negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement is sort of an environmental situation where there's a rewarding stimulus or experience. So what happens, everybody, when you drink alcohol? Are you happy or are you sad? Happy. You're happy. Yeah. It gives you a sense of euphoria. So that's the positive reinforcement. Mm. Women growing up and sort of come into their own, they have a drink and next thing they're the most popular, prettiest person in the room. That's the effect of alcohol. So when you have that euphoric effect, you're more likely to drink it again. And as you drink it again, you may need more of it the next time to have the same effect. Mm-hmm. And alcohol and alcohol seeking behavior. So while we talk about measures in life, some people run, they jog, they get this euphoric effect. It, certainly it works, but it doesn't have the potency that alcohol has in such an immediate small amount initially. You may have to use it more later. Now, there's a negative reinforcement to it in that um, alcohol over time, you want to avoid an adverse and negative stimulus. So if you drank and you have a really bad hangover, people will say, oh, what do they call it? I forget the word, ear of the dog, wag of the dog, something like that. Uh, to Tail drink- of the dog, yeah. Hair of the dog. Hair of the dog. Always hair of the dog, always. I could never do it. I could oh, never. Every time, every time Michaela. <laughs> <laughs> so you're irritable, you're anxious, and you have dysphoria, not euphoria. So you'll drink to make that feeling go away. So the positive reinforcement is let me drink. I want to get my groove on. Here I go. But then when you don't have it, you're, you're negative, you're depressed, you're kind of down. So say, let me have it to get back that euphoric effect. So it's very behavioral. So that becomes more of a psychological aspect related to this. Mm-hmm. So it starts out as a mild way to seek pleasure, CERN turns into a full-fledged addiction because you neuroadapt, your brain neuroadapts to look for that. We, we don't want to feel sad. We don't want to feel anxious. We don't want to feel negative. People will always seek pleasure. I do. So um, it causes the person to convert from an alcohol non-addict to an alcohol addict. But I see how Erin and I, like we're, we're very different. So she is the addict and I, I could have easily stopped. And for me, when I would get the hangover in the morning, I, I could go weeks without drinking because I hated that feeling. So that reward or the, the, the non-reward that I was getting feeling hungover, I felt depressed, like all of these like negative things that I'm like, that's it. And so even in my twenties, I, I now say I was sober curious most of my twenties because I would go like years without drinking sometimes or months. And then I would fall into the society habits and, and, you know, get into that, but it's, yeah, there's, there's different, different situations out there, but yeah, it's interesting. If you had my guess, and I'm guessing if you had had that feeling and then said, Oh, had half a drink next to you, just picked it up and drank it in the morning and say, Oh, then let me just see. Chances are you would have continued to repeat the behavior because Mm -hmm. it would have taken it away. And sadly, alcoholics find a way to do that because often people will be drinking and then pass out, blackout, wake up in the morning and say, oh, I left that drink. Let me just, just get rid of it. And then all of a sudden you have the euphoria again. So you are remedying yourself and you have found a solution, a bad one, albeit, but you found one. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. 
Um, no, and I'm just, I'm laughing because I would do hair of the, I would exercise hair of the dog and then be back to, I feel great and drink again. I, that's how insane it is. This is insanity. Okay. Maybe because you've created a cycle. Yeah. A cycle that when you have a cycle, you can't really break out of a circle. There's no room to vert off unless you do something drastic. So with this cycle you've created, you're drinking, you have positive reinforcement, then you have negative because you don't feel good. So then you drink and it's positive again. And now you go round and round and round. Some people for days, weeks, years, lifetime. Yeah. 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 So, um, and remember, uh, you know, people will often say eat when you drink, the reason for that, if we go back to the first thing I'd mentioned is that when you eat, um, if you absorb alcohol slower. So you, you tend to have to drink more. You tend not to have as, as quick or bad as an effect when you, when you eat before you drink. And of course people will say, drink lots of water. That'll change it. In the end, while people are giving this advice and it is sort of true. Yes. You don't absorb it as quick. You're still taking in. So if you have three glasses of wine, the body still got three glasses of ethanol, how you absorb it and what you do, that doesn't matter. You've still ingested it. You still have all these other problems related to it. It may affect you slower, better, whatever it is, but that is still happening. So all of that is sort of neither here nor there. It's still happening. Whether Aaron drank three drinks and someone else drank four and ate a steak, it's still bad. Like you've still taken all this in and the brain doesn't care. It's still trying to figure out because we're going to talk about this now, the neurotransmitters, you've set off a whole different pathway in your brain. Okay. I can't wait to hear about this. Okay. Teach us about the brain. All here. right. Yes. Bore so, you to death. So uh, <laughs> there's basically like we talked about everything in the body's affected. There's a neural circuit. So neurons, neural circuit that you create in your brain. And it's neurons which send chemicals, just like we send an email to one another, what to do, okay? Now you're gonna muddy the water with alcohol or another toxin, whatever your drug of choice is. And that sets off mismessages, okay? So there are four, four main ones. There's lots, but there's four that, that matter really. Uh, one is dopamine. Another is serotonin. Another is called GABA. So like your kids watch that show, GABA GABA. Mm -hmm. um, GABA, is, it stands for gamma aminobutyric acid, but we'll just call it GABA and glutamate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, basically uh, dopamine, it uh, increases dopamine. Okay. Um, this is important. Um, it can cause withdrawal symptoms later. When you talk about withdrawal, uh, dopamine is one of the major ones that cause your withdrawal symptoms. Serotonin, it increases serotonin activity and um, that can lead to impulsivity. Uh, it's shown well in rats and humans, uh, very well documented. Um, people a lot of antidepressants, people that take those, it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You want to keep serotonin in your body. Alcohol does a good job of that, but it is temporary. Um, the other one is GABA. GABA is decreased and glutamate is decreased. So if you can just remember the G's are down and the others are up. Mm. Um, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. 
uh, regulate your emotional state. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It stimulates nerve cells. So this is decreased. So your brain activity is slower when you drink. Now, without getting too, you know, I don't want to bore everyone to death, but um, something like dopamine, a dopamine allows you to feel pleasure, satisfaction, and motivation. Okay. So alcohol helps stimulate that. What happens in the brain basically is that when you're sending out these little emails, these little neurotransmitters, the body wants homeostasis. So you're throwing these four neurotransmitters off. What the body will do is if you're inhibiting GABA and glutamate, the body, the brain will make more receptors so that if any of it is in the body, it wants to get more. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So by making more receptors, maybe you're not making as much GABA and glutamate, but for what is that's out there, all of a sudden you have a new way of catching it. This doesn't go away overnight. So for people that drink, those receptors are still there and they get mm. very excited when they think they're going to see GABA or glutamate. So they will fire and turn on again to have that filled. Um, early literature thought, now this is for a chronic drinker, someone who chronically damages this area of your brain. It was thought that maybe it took two years for that to shut down permanently. They're now saying nine years. This is probably why we see relapses later in sobriety, five to 10 years. And honestly, they don't even, you know, there's not a lot of funding that goes into this, but they thought who knows if it really ever goes away? I mean, one could throw that out there. So that's why you'll see an alcoholic that has some degree of sobriety and then all of a sudden they break. And why also when someone is drinking, I've often heard people say, you know, I was sober 10 years and then I picked up and it took me a week. I was right back in. Those receptors are waking up again and they want to be fed. Everything wants something in the body and you have to nourish it. So that's something that uh, certainly does happen. Makes so much sense mm -hmm. from my vantage point in the rooms because I'm always blown away by that. But now medically, that makes sense. I never knew that. That makes mm -hmm. so much sense. So physiologically for people, you know, um, long-term sobriety, sadly, is less than 5% for all comers. But this is really why. So when people say, oh, it's me, I'm just a loser, I can't do it, that is not the case. Um, certainly it takes psychological motivation and you have to physically not buy the alcohol. But I also don't want people listening to think, oh, it's not my fault. My brain is just developed this way. It can be shut down, but it will take more willpower. And if you continue to drink and do these things, you will die. So it's important that you are aware of what's happening. I'm giving you a physiologic reason, but that doesn't mean you don't have to take ownership of it because you have changed your homeostasis. You have the regulatory systems in your brain and your body, but just like you change them, you have to change them back. Abstinence is- So how eight. does somebody change the ownership of it? Um, what are some of the steps? Obviously, if it's maybe not so advanced that they have to see a doctor or hospital, like what are some things that they can do to- slow down, eliminate, you know, just knowing how the brain works, like what, how can they, what can they do? The flip switch for any of these receptors would be the alcohol or the drug that that person is taking. That's what created it. That's what's driving it. So even visually, if you see it, those receptors may start firing. So if you're passing a bar, you're in that sort of milieu, 
that will stimulate that because you're sending something to the brain that might wake that up and say to itself, oh, it might be coming soon. Let me wake up, dust myself off. You have to be aware of it, intellectually be aware of what is happening to you. You 100% must abstain from alcohol. You can't have a sip of it. You cannot have anything because those receptors will start firing again, looking for it. And you'll have to find other behaviors. That's more of a psychological talk, which we can do at a different time. But there are things people do to distract themselves. Um, you know, people with anxiety, they're interesting. Um, they will have anxiety and think that by drinking alcohol plays their anxiety, when in fact, it actually makes it much worse because it's affecting that serotonin pathway. Remember, we talked about glutamate, GABA, serotonin, and dopamine. For that, it's more serotonin, which is why benzodiazepines tend to work in this type of area, also dopamine. But um, you will find that while it has an immediate effect, overall long-term effect, it is actually driving your anxiety. And remember, ethanol is a depressant, well-documented. It is driving depression and suicidal ideation. People will have to find a way and everybody's different. Every alcoholic I have met, they are interesting. They are all different. Some people need to have their mind occupied. They're also unfortunately mm. personality disorder and addiction to a certain degree, whether it be something like anxiety and depression versus, you know, real personality disorders or uh, psychiatric disorders. But depending what those are, Somebody may have to, um, you know, for some people, it's just keeping their mind busy doing puzzles, coloring, simple things like that. Other people, it's taking up exercise, yoga, meditation. What it ultimately, what I've seen in my 25 years comes down to is that inherent makeup of a person. What is driving that behavior? What is driving you to drink? What is driving someone to smoke cigarettes, smoke marijuana, take cocaine? What is it you're trying to do that is bothering you? That has to be dealt with in a more healthy, adaptive way. Amen. So, I love that I, answer. Yeah. I do yoga and I, I, I like to move. You know, I'm a hospitalist. I could never be a surgeon. I couldn't stand still that long. I want to move around. So I that wouldn't be for me necessarily yoga. I've gone. It's nice. It works for some people. But then other people might need to jog. Some people, it's retail therapy. Other, You know, it's something else. Whatever would... You know, and this goes back to, you know, a healthy lifestyle and sleeping well and all these different factors, because this is all physiologic. Um, so it's sort of a broad question you asked me. It's a little hard to kind of pare down into one answer, but somebody would really have to look at themselves or a psychologist, psychiatrist or an internist and say to themselves, what is it that gives me pleasure when I actually do this? I know sometimes I go to home goods and I look around and it gives me genuine pleasure to have done that. I don't know why, but it does. So that satisfies me for an hour, but then other people, it's something else going to the food store, going out to eat, you know, having a man or a woman hit on them. This gives them some degree of satisfaction and euphoria. Euphoria is key because we all want to be happy. Yeah. We all want to be happy. And that's why we, yeah, that's why people drink, right? They want to be happy. They want to feel confident. They want to feel happy. They want to feel confident. Remember, just to touch on parts of the brain, um, since we're, you know, talking about that, when you drink alcohol, one of the main uh, parts of your brain, there's, there's, the brain is fascinating. You could just spend your whole life looking at it. But um, 
one of the main areas you affect is your frontal lobe. So right here in the front by your forehead, there's a frontal lobe. And that's what you see damaged in a lot of football players with concussions, different things like that. But with alcohol, it's one of the main area effects, short term and long term. And what the frontal lobe does, it is an area of your brain that um, it controls your social behavior. Your personality comes from your frontal lobe. Um, it's a memory center, a learning center, a reward center, an attention center. So when people drink, what do they do? They become very boisterous. They want to be the center of attention, motivation, judgment, problem solving, planning. That's all why. the things. Yep, <laughs> all of the things. This is one of my that that was one of my struggles is after I drank, and I'm a very highly motivated person. I could not do what I set out to do, and it like irked me so much. I would get so frustrated with myself. I'm like, I booked this appointment last week. Like, why can't I like commit to it? There was like something in my body that I just, I couldn't go on do certain things that I set out to do physically. That physiologic change that happened with alcohol. That's all it was. You physiologically had taken an exogenous substance, put it in your body and affect your internal organs. And that spiked up my anxiety big time because, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this is just making me think of, so one of the main drivers for my drinking was anxiety and depression as a child. And it's, I remember the day that I was maybe not even, not even a year yet sober. And I sat, I was sitting by myself and I said, I had this feeling of peace calm and happiness. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have anything in my body. And I, I, I am that, I am that which I was seeking. So you can, for anybody listening, want to give them hope. You can get back to that place of balance and goodness. And for me, it's a spiritual solution and a spiritual solution first. And then what I do on a daily basis, which Mikhail and I, you know, this is a huge part of what the mastermind is for anybody looking to put down the drink are all these modalities to help you heal and to help you have that happiness, that peace, that euphoria, that power back over your health and well-being that, you know, alcohol took away from me, but I actually thought that poison was giving it to me and it, it, you know, it wasn't, it's a liar, but, you know, I just want to bring that up because I think sometimes we, I, I know I did when I was in rehab, I said, I can never drink again. I will never be happy again. My, you know, and then, but but you do the work and you stay this course, your body heals, your mind heals, and your soul gets to this place where you don't even, you can't even believe it's possible after hearing how badly the body and the mind are burned, so to speak, from this poison. I want to just throw that out there for anybody listening who's like, oh my God, but what do I do now? Well, what you do now is exactly what you said, Erin. We talked about those receptors. They will shut down. Again, the body wants to normalize. Once you stop taking an alcohol or drinking or drugging of any type, they will cool down. They won't shut off. They'll cool down. And they still want to be stimulated. They'll find a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I like I like what you said about your you want to be busy. You want to find what brings you joy, what brings you euphoria on all different levels, right? But sleep is so important, healthy nutrition, all of that is going to fill in those gaps that you probably didn't take care of the entire time you were, you know, drinking. So 
yeah. So now it's like, I feel like once you decide to take this route, it's like this whole new world opens up in front of you. And what we like to do, Aaron and I, is we, we love to support people along this journey because it can get lonely in the beginning if your friends aren't all drinkers, if all the events you go to are very alcohol-based. Mm-hmm. And so we want to offer solutions for things in your daily life, literally day to day. Um, and so the mastermind is the best place to be for you to get started for that. For, for anyone that's a chronic drinker and um, I've had it in my family and I've seen it with patients, inevitably they tend to be alone. Even the people that are surrounded by lots of people who are drinking heavily, whether it's known or not known, are alone and they tend to feel lonely. Um, alcohol brings out something and blunts that feeling. But when you stop drinking, no, there is hope. There is always hope. It will go away. Those receptors will shut down. You wake up, you have no friends, you have no family, no one's speaking to you. I heard someone once say, there are things you don't remember that they will never forget. You may not have a clear recollection of what you did or what's happened, but you need to have ownership of what happened. You need to start to stand taller and taller and face the inevitable, but life goes on. And if your body has survived to this point, whether it be you've required hospitalization, you have not, you're just concerned about your drinking, it's already wasting your very vibrant life. So put that down and move forward with your life. And many people would be surprised. People are forgiving. Once you start to do well, people will see it. I was with a woman on Monday who had stopped drinking for 15 years, then picked up. She then drank heavily for two years, had an accident, wound up in a coma, recovered. And now she was celebrating 10 years of sobriety. And she was so excited to be back in double digits. But she Mm. lost her son in the process, not physically, he's alive, but he doesn't want anything to do with her. And being the mother of two 13-year-old boys, I said to her, I don't know if I could survive knowing my sons are out there. She said, if I didn't put it down, I couldn't move forward. As awful as it is, it would eat me alive. I wish him well. When he wants to come back, he's welcome back. But I can't let that eat me up every day because I will drink. And I'm mm-hmm. here for and, and I looked at her and I thought, wow, how incredibly strong she must be to have found her way this way. But people have to give up things, marriages, children, careers, in order to claw their way back to life. Forget that it happened. You have to move forward. Well, here's the thing. We accumulate sometimes really bad shit along the way on this journey if we do drink, right? So it's like a lot of it has to fall away, whether it's relationships, whether it's habits, whether it's events, whether it's some dreams, right? So it's it's just becoming more bare and more simple and finding the the joys in life on a on a in a different way, in a different way. Um, but Dr. Aaron. Thank you so much. This was like, I hope you guys have taken notes. Um, <laughs> super educational. More to talk about, but another time. Part two. We want you to come back. Yes. Like many come back. Yes. So many things we need to discuss, but I learned so much and I'm just so 
Oh my goodness, moved. So thank you for sharing. I know how you're very busy. So thank you for taking time out for two sober girls and for everyone listening. Um, we're here to help anyone who's desiring to change their relationship with or to alcohol. Today is the day. Reach out. We are here to help you. Absolutely. I wish everyone listening the best of luck and thank you for having me. Beautiful. Thank you. And everyone, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and we will be back next week. Have a great day. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.